0: Take a look around and just see the empty seats this morning that you would normally see filled. And whoever God puts on your heart that you know that's not here, reach out and just remind them of two things. Because God arranges the parts of the body, he's the one who calls you here and you're here for a reason. Every single person in this room is important. We are not whole without you. We are not heritage without you. No matter how inconsequential you think you are to heritage, we aren't whole without you. Pass that on to the person that God puts on your heart. Remind them that they're important for here, but also remind them that we love them and that we miss them and that they're not alone. I mean, I know several several are locked away indoors, dealing with COVID and, and other things. And I think a message that says, hey, I know, you, I know you feel horrible. I know you feel like you wanna crawl under a rock and die, but you're loved and you're missed. Um, I just think that's important. That's, that's a part of who we are. Um, so just tr- look around and see the empty hole and go, hey, I'm gonna send a note to them and to the small group leaders, definitely make sure y- you guys, that we talk to our people and, um, and reach out to them today. Uh, one other little thing of um, cleanup here. From last week, I kind of reflected on how I explained something, and it was um, really, really horrible. <laughs> I did a really poor job. Um, I got kind of wrapped around on one point and then forgot to say the rest of it, basically, is what happened. Um, and I talked about burdens, things that happen to you not being your cross that's not your cross to bear. If you look at Scripture, like James 1, for instance, count it all joy when you suffer trials of many kinds. The trials and tribulations are things that God uses to show his faithfulness, to, to mold you, to shape you. To And Scripture's pretty consistent with that. Bearing your cross, it's about the gospel, but it's not just about the gospel of your salvation in the moment. It's also about living out the gospel. And how do we do that? Jesus is the example of what it means to bear your cross. He set his face to Jerusalem and he kept walking to Jerusalem even though though he knew what was waiting for him there. Even though he could have called called a legion of angels to rescue himself from the cross, he hung there until he died. Even though he could have taken, they offered him hyssop and and vinegar that would have eased the pain because it was drugged he refused it and he bore the whole cross bearing your cross means that you obey the lord and follow him regardless of the consequences regardless of what it costs you that's what it means to pick up your cross daily and follow him You follow him in obedience regardless of the consequences. If it costs you your life, you follow him. And that's what it, and in last week, that's what Jesus said. If you want to be my disciples, pick up your cross and follow me daily. That's what it means to pick up your cross. So I wanted to clear that up because I did a really, really, really bad job last week and I apologize to those that looked at me like, what in the world is he saying? Um, but today, we're going to go back into a familiar passage, and normally we'd have you stand and read. But we're doing an entire chapter of Luke today. Um, I'm going to be nice to you, and we're not going to stand and read the whole thing. We're going to go into it and, and begin. So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 15. And let, me, let me pray before we get started. Father, I, I pray that the message um, this morning would resonate in our hearts, Lord, that, that we would see something of you, and Lord, that we would see something in, uh, in you that causes us to sit in wonder and awe, Lord, that in gratitude and humility. Father, I, I just pray that as we know you better, that Lord, we would be astounded even more. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's uh, set the setting here. There's an ongoing thing that's been going on where Jesus has been, over the last several chapters, Luke felt like it was necessary to to show the times that Jesus is saying, look, I've come for the poor and the sick and those who are struggling. And there's just been this running dialogue. And now Jesus is, is going to have yet another one of those instances. And we're going to deal with three parables that are very familiar parables. Um, but ironically, they're all saying the same thing, but each has just a little different twist. And they follow a pattern that Luke has. When he, he has a habit of pairing, or nah, I guess pairing is not the right word, but joining three parables together. And, is, and each time, they have kind of a similar pattern. He'll speak to it from the viewpoint of a man, then, from the viewpoint of a woman, and then uh, kind of a summarizing uh, parable, and that's what we're going to see this morning. And I think it's important to know because I, I think Luke is doing this on purpose. I think he's trying to he's trying to communicate a truth t- to different people in a way that connects with them and they find it important. And what we're going to talk about this I- this morning is this idea. Of what it means when a lost person comes to Christ. What happens in God's heart? Because I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I live out my faith this way. I come, I, I I come to God in salvation, and I know, I know that it's by grace that I have not earned it, that there is nothing that I bring to the table. But then I sin. And Stuart and I were talking about this this morning. I sin, and I think, well, I'm, because I'm saved and I've sinned, now I have to earn my way back into God's grace and God's presence and, and, and that he must be completely and wholly disappointed with me. You know, these things creep into me. And what I, what, what I hope you get from this morning is a clearer picture of what it means when God finds you a really clear picture that the enemy loses the power to control your mindset through shame and guilt and accusations this morning. I want you to see the real heart of God with this whole idea of you being found. And he begins, so Luke begins and he says, and he sets the the, the thing again. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So some background here. The Pharisees, which is really kind of funny, they were actually considered the liberals of the day. You had the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees would be the literal biblicists. The Pharisees were the ones who tried to adapt the Scripture to their time and place. and So they were actually liberal in the theology, but they were very conservative in their morality and when i I say conservative what i mean is this is they didn't just take god's law and say here is god's law we have to follow this they then built fences around that to protect us from getting if we build a fence here if you don't get over the fence you won't violate the law and the problem is is they kept, they'd build a fence and then after a while they'd think the fence was the law so they'd have to build another fence to keep you from getting to that fence. And they've gotten to the point where Jesus at one point says, not only do you not go in, but you prevent others from going in. They've created so many laws that nobody can possibly come to God. And here's the thing. When we start living in that legalistic, man-made world of, of laws and rules and dictates, we as leaders in the church can no longer say that we're operating in the Spirit either. We're leading from the flesh as well. And that's, that's how you have somebody who gets into the pulpit and preaches condemnation with no remorse for those undergoing it. This is how you get get to a point where you can come into the pulpit and you can blast everybody in the world with no sense of humility of your own sin nature. And that's where the Pharisees were. They were no longer about true righteousness. They were about appearances. They wanted to look the part without being the part. And the reason... For that was they didn't trust God enough to just follow his word they had to God needed their help and had to go further and because of that they had isolated themselves and they said unless you look and act and behave this way you cannot be gods have any of us ever been in a church situation where that was kind of the case where if somebody walked in the door and they weren't wearing the right clothes that they were asked to leave? Have we ever been in a situation where you walked through the door and because you didn't look like everybody else, you knew instantly you weren't truly welcome? That's what it would have been like to walk into into a meeting of the Pharisees. And they're isolated and they're saying, look, these people cannot be God's people. These tax collectors, they set up toll booths and they, and they rip their people off and they take all this money and, they, and we cannot even associate with them. We, their, their oral tradition said basically that these people that were sinners, and by the way, sinners would include people like shepherds, Gentiles, tax collectors, basically anybody who wasn't a Pharisee was a sinner. They could not go into their house to eat, nor they could, have, could they have them at their house to eat. If they had anything to do with one of them, and they had to, so if they had to have a meal with someone for a business thing or something like that, for instance, they had all these little rules about, hey, you can't drink wine from the same bottle and so the and the bottle that they have to open it has to be sealed with a wax seal in such a way that that it proves that there's no way that their lips could have touched that bottle and over and over and over all these rules you could chuck a a a head of of wheat and get if you did it in a certain way if your thumb went in a certain direction i mean this is how ridiculous they had become and if you weren't a part of them, you could not be gods. You were a sinner. And they're sitting there, and they're watching Jesus, and they're, they're not trying to follow Jesus. They're looking and going, okay, look. Now, Matt and I kind of talked about this morning, when does all mean all? Because uh, here it says, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus. I don't think every tax collector and sinner in Israel was actually coming to Jesus. It means that a lot of them were. That those were hear- they were hearing about them, and they were coming and just, it, like it was the norm. It was the norm that every day these people felt comfortable walking up and, and coming to Jesus. And church, this is who I want Heritage to be. I want us to be like our Lord Jesus as He walked the earth, that we are a comfortable place for those who the rest of the world considers sinners and, sh- and wants to stay away from them I want them to be able to come here. I want them to be able to come here and meet God. We have to reflect that. When somebody walks through those doors, no matter what they look like, I want them to feel like they can meet God here. I want us to reflect what Jesus is doing, that it w- I think it would be really cool if our reputation got to be such that people all over the streets were like, "That's a good place to go." That would be awesome. To the point where people go all the all the centers in Dr- in Greenville keep going over there. <laughs> that would be awesome. So, here, how did Jesus respond to these Pharisees and their accusations? He's, he he does it with a parable. He says, so he told this parable. What man of of, of you, having a hundred sheep, which, by the way, is a very modest flock. Wealthy people would have upwards of 300, 400, 500 uh, sheep in their flock. So this is just kind of a smallish, average flock. Does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, let me give you some shepherding 101 here. Um, because there's so many passages that deal with shepherding, and it's, it's good for you to understand what's going on here. So a lot of times, shepherds would travel in bands. So maybe I owned 100 sheep, and I hired a shepherd, and he, he shepherded my, my flock. And he would take them out, and he would find grazing land for them. But there would be other shepherds. Dee's shepherd would be out there, and he'd have 200 sheep. And then Charles' the shepherd would be out there, and he'd have 100 sheep. And, and they'd all be grazing on the same hill. And then at night, what they would do is they, ha- they would build these, these sheep pens. They would take branches and thorn bushes and whatnot, and they would basically build a corral. They would build the corral, and they would, they would take all of their sheep, and they would put all of their sheep in the corral, and then one or two of them would lay across the gate of the opening that they herded the sheep into they would they would lay across that gate to keep the animals out and keep the sheep in thus when jesus and john says that he is the gate that's what he's referring to he's the one who sits at the at the gate and protects the the flock now if they're in town if you look at the way a jewish town was normally built like grandma and grandpa would be here and then then all the brothers would build houses uh, around in a square, and then the grandchildren would buy would build houses, and, and, and they would create basically this big, long courtyard surrounded by all their little houses, and the whole family would live in this little compound. And at night, they would take their flocks, and they would herd them into the compound, and they would shut the gates, and they would and they, would li- and they would be in there. And so when Jesus says he is the gatekeeper, he's the one who has the key to that gate that comes into the compound where the, where the sheep are kept. So when he says here that the shepherd leaves the 99, in all likelihood, what they would have heard was that the 99 get put into the sheep pen, the other shepherds are there, and, and the sheep are not unguarded. They're not just left in the open field to fend for themselves. And he goes and he finds the one that is lost. Now, interestingly, when a sheep is lost and out by itself, one of the things that would happen is it, sheep are not very intelligent animals, just in case you didn't realize that. So when Matt and I say that you're our flock, we're not always complimenting you. (laughs) Yeah, sorry Gentry. But sometimes the sheep would get out alone and isolated by itself, and the stress of the moment and and everything that was going on, it would cause it to get so worn out and weary that it would just lay down someplace and be unable to walk and move. It would just be exhausted. And so when the shepherd would come and finally find the, the sheep, many times he'd have to lift it up and put it on its shoulders and carry it back to the flock. Thus, you see all the pictures of the shepherd with the, with the lamb over, its, over his shoulder and walking back. And interestingly enough, for those of us who are prone to wander, oftentimes if a sheep wandered habitually, the shepherd would break his leg. So that the only way he could travel would be on the shepherd's shoulder and he sat so close to the shepherd, and he heard the shepherd's voice so closely for so long that from, from then on, once he had healed, he would just stay close to the shepherd's voice. How many of you have ever felt like you were out in the middle of the field, exhausted, unable to move, just worn out, waiting for the wolves to come? Yeah. Yeah. How many people in Greenville this morning feel that way? And this is what I love what Jesus says. That he goes out and after the one that is lost until he finds it. Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing And when he comes home, he he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. One out of a hundred. Just one out of a hundred. Who here, if you saw a dollar laying on the ground, would pick it up? Who here, if you saw a penny laying on the ground, would pick it up? Not many. Less than half. One out of, A penny is one out of a hundred. You would pick up a hundred, but you wouldn't pick up the one. Jesus says, not only will he go search for the one, he will put it on his shoulder and carry the one back rejoicing. And not only will he rejoice, but he will call together his friends and his neighbors and he will rejoice. So when that's the next time the enemy whispers in your ear, you can't come to the Father in repentance, that you are too much of a sinner, that he hates you, that I want you to remember this passage and remember that when he carried you back into the fold, that he rejoiced and he didn't just rejoice, he called everybody together and said, let's rejoice together. Folks, as a church, we are the ones he's calling together to rejoice when he calls one into the fold. We should stand in amazement at what God has done. And let me tell you something. If you were raised in the church, if you've been in church your whole life, the hardest part for you is to understand that you were lost in that field sometimes. That is the hardest thing for you to get through your head sometimes. I'm just going to tell you, you are as lost and alone in that field and as much a sinner lost as the drug addict who lived in a field. And you can't lose sight of that. Because if you lose sight of that, you also lose sight of the rejoicing that God did when He called you. And that's big the Creator God of the universe rejoices. Rejoices. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know what a righteous person who doesn't need repentance is? A liar. A liar. Because there is none. Scripture tells us there is no one righteous. Not one. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over a truly repentant sinner than over 99 hypocrites who think they're righteous. That's why when we build our fences and we say, here's how you have to look and behave and act to be righteous. And that our righteousness isn't because we belong to Jesus Christ. We look and behave and act in a a way that is set apart and different because we trust God. And we're willing to pick up our cross daily and follow Him. We're not doing it to earn God's favor. He's already thrown a party for us and that's when we were just a dry in the mouth, laying in the field, can't walk sheep. What have we got to bring now? Yeah, it could be because I'm thirsty. <laughs> what do we uh, suddenly have to bring that makes, it, that makes it so much better than when He rejoiced over us to begin with? Yeah. It's interesting. Flip over in your Bibles if you would to Ezekiel 34. Not not earlier in Ezekiel like Matt wanted me to read from. Oh, thank you. You're awesome. Okay. C- Caleb's now a deacon in training. <laughs> 34. Now, just, if you don't find it, that's okay. Just sit and listen. I want you to to capture this. This is Ezekiel, and the Lord's speaking against the leaders of Israel. And he says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, ah shepherds of israel who have been feeding yourselves should not shepherds feed the sheep you eat the fat you clothe yourselves with the wool you slaughter the fat ones but you do not feed the sheep okay now if there's if someone is a false teacher out there who's getting wealthy off the church and telling lies to them from scripture they need they this is a passage they need to read the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the, the strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. This is ex- describing exactly the way the Pharisees behaved and acted and lived. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is laying the scattered lost sheep at the feet of the leaders and the shepherds. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, and that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them in from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountains heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. Jesus is declaring to the Pharisees He's here for His lost sheep. Of which you and I are one. And there was more rejoicing in heaven. More rejoicing in heaven. The day He brought you back into the fold on His shoulders than over hundreds of those who are faking it and claiming righteousness that is their own. When you start feeling like you're unimportant, when you start feeling like your salvation doesn't matter, when you start feeling like you're just a cog in the wheel, I want you to realize that when you, 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 Margie, when you had that prayer in, in your room and you, you got on your knees, there was rejoicing in heaven. When you guys left the streets and you came and he finally got your heart, there was rejoicing in heaven. There was a party. And church, we've got to join the party. <laughs> we've got to be excited when God rescues people. And the more broken and lost and wounded they are, the more we should rejoice. One of the things I love about our church is how broken we are. I love that about us because you know what it shows? How great is the mercy of our God. And he goes on and he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lo- had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who rep- repents. Now, there's a lot of discussion, okay? Is a silver coin? Is it expensive? Is it expensive? The parable doesn't tell us. And let me give you this. Get used to interpreting parables and looking for the simple message. Don't add value to, well, the silver coin was this and this was this. It was valuable to her. Now, you can conjecture why it may have been valuable to her. Maybe she didn't have a lot of money. Uh, one, One thing a lot of Bible scholars believe, if you see pictures of ancient uh, times they had the women wore these little these little uh, headbands and they had coins that would go around. I think I I have a, like a picture there, and you'd see the little coins. Those those coins were her dowry. That was that was her her father's gift to her to her new family uh, at at her marriage. And so you can imagine if she loses one of those coins off of that thing and she's living in that. Square with all of her relatives to walk out would be a little embarrassing, right? So that it could be that it was she had lost a coin off of off of her head, her headdress, and it was important. But the the important thing to remember is the coin had value to her, and she searched diligently. And the message to us is that you have value to the Lord, that He assigns you for His reasons and he searched diligently for you. Then he tells this parable, and in this parable, it's, a, it's the parable of the prodigal son, and, and he's been speaking so far of the lost and the seeker, and now he's going to bring in a sec- a second or, or a third person. is the lost and the seeker, and then there's the observer. And I, Piper talks about this, and I think I agree with him. Jesus, probably one of the few times in his ministry, turns and has a gentle message for the Pharisees, if they'll only hear it. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them now this is a younger son and the way this worked is this being a younger son in many asian cultures is a really raw deal Um, first off the oldest son would get the majority of the inheritance he would get two-thirds of everything the father owned the remaining one-third would go to would be divided between the other sons and if there were and then additionally all the daughters their dowry would come out of that one third. So instead of taking the dowry out of the two thirds that goes to the oldest brother, they w- the youngest brother was the one have to. He'd have to give up part of his so his sisters could all get married, right? So and then second off, a lot of times in Asian cultures, the youngest son had to live with mom and dad for the rest of his life, and his wife had to be the servant of the mother-in-law. Okay, girls. Quick, who would want to marry the youngest son of a family? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's why oftentimes the youngest son would go his entire life unmarried because it was hard to find people who were willing to go do that. So it's kind of understandable why this young man would go, hey, Dad, go ahead and give me my inheritance now because I have an exit plan. I have an exit plan. And the father agrees. Now, here's what's big about that. What the youngest son is saying is, Dad, I want to live as if you're dead. Give me my inheritance now. Let me live as if you were no longer here. Do we ever do that to our Heavenly Father? And of course, the young man takes his money and invests it wisely and earns a fortune, right? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, not many days later, the younger son, now get this, not many days later, when I said he had an exit plan, I was serious, not many days later, The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Okay, now some of this inheritance, most of this inheritance actually probably was land and livestock and whatnot. So what that meant was he immediately sold everything. He liquidated his assets. And he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. For a Jew, there is nothing worse than feeding unclean animals." Basically what Jesus is saying is this kid squandered everything that he'd been given and he had to live in shame in absolute shame I don't know about you guys but I've been there And what I want you to follow is the path of what how not the son but the father And he was longing, he was hungry. He's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. He's sitting there feeding the pigs this nasty food that is inedible for humans. And he's going, I wish I could just eat that. Now that The parable doesn't tell us why he didn't eat it, couldn't eat it. It just says he couldn't. The picture you need to get here is this. He's living in shame. He is hungry. He is destitute. All those people who partied with him and lived off of his wealth, none of them will give him anything. Mm -hmm. But without that, he would never have come to his senses. But when he came to himself, literally came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, it's, it's interesting. Here, catch this. Sometimes in allegorizing, and I've been really guilty of this, we will make the father God. It's important because when he says that I have sinned against heaven, he's saying I've sinned against God. So Jesus very subtly says, Look, the point stick to the point of the story. He's not making the Father God. He's saying, Hey, there's a there's a message to be given here and it fits all the other messages. Because when the Son says, I've sinned against God, and you, Father, it shows that there's there's multiple here. And he and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, like I said, this is not saying, hey, the father is God, but what it is showing here is Jesus is saying, this is the heart of God. This is how God responds. When you started coming to your senses, and saying, I need to go to my Father's house because at least, I may not have anything, but at least I'll look at the people who are fed. He didn't come to you with crossed arms and go, you know what you did? You took, you took and you said, I wish you were dead and I wish I had everything and, I, it, and you squandered everything I worked my entire life for. Now that's what a good Jew would do. <laughs> if you if you watch filler on the roof, <laughs> you, you know that would be you, know, you would get a tongue lashing and you would have to uh you, you would have to live in that that shame and the guilt, but no. The father apparently was looking for a son to come back. He was looking for a son to come back. And look, in jewish culture in the eastern world there people didn't run the idea of running towards somebody was incredibly undignified the fact that the father ran to the son said i don't care what anybody thinks there's my son and he runs to him feeling compassion and he embraces him, and he kisses him, and the son has this big prepared speech, and he breaks out his note cards, and he says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And of course the father said, You're absolutely right, you dirtbag. No, he says, but the father said to his servant, he ignored that in his son. He said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe. That's the one they would have set aside for really important guests to come into the house and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. That would be the family signet. And he said, and shoes on his feet. Look, the servants in the household typically weren't given shoes. Those shoes are important. That's the Father saying, no, you're not coming into my house as a servant. You're coming into my house as my son. And we come to God in our shame, and our guilt, in in recognizing our sin, and and we confess and we repent. And instead of rubbing our noses in it, and reminding us how wicked and evil we are, he declares to the entire world, This is my child. You aren't in God's house as an unwelcome visitor. You're in God's house because He has declared you His child. You. Not the person sitting next to you. Not somebody else. You. You have been declared his child. He's put the robe on you. He's put the ring on you. He's put shoes on your feet. And look what else. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. You're not in the house because of begrudging forgiveness. You're in the house because we wanted to have a party and you're the guest of honor. Don't let the enemy steal that joy from you. Don't let your own sinful nature steal that from you. Walk in it. You're a precious, lost, but found child of the Father. And then there's this other son, though. Now, his oldest son was in the field, and I really believe this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he came and drew near to the house He heard music and dancing. He saw the party they were throwing for this lost person. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he he has received him back safe and sound. But instead of joining the party but he was angry and refused to go in. That's right where the Pharisees were. Jesus is sitting here and he's throwing a party because of these lost, broken sheep that are coming and repenting. And the Pharisees are saying, we will not go in and celebrate with you. We will have no part of celebrating these sinners coming to repentance. They were the shepherds in Ezekiel who were determined to live off the fat of the flock and not bind their wounds and not rescue them and not seek them out. Instead of being the shepherds who brought repentance and restoration, they were the shepherds who got rich off of them and hated them. but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Didn't demand, didn't chastise, begged him. This is where I think Piper's got it right. Jesus is turning to them and saying, look, God is begging you, entreating you. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, listen very carefully to the language. For all these years I served you. For all these years I obeyed your commands. The older brother always lived in the presence of the father like a slave. Not like the son that he was. How many of us, living self-righteous lives, dealing with the world, with our fences upon fences upon fences, how many of us have been there and we lived our faith like we were slaves instead of children? How much pity we should have for the Pharisees. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. For a person who's living in self-righteousness, nothing is more galling than the celebration of salvation for someone who has squandered everything in life. It's frustrating to them many times because... Look what all I've done. And nobody celebrates my salvation. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive, he was lost, and is found. Why don't you come in? and join the party. It's always been available for you to come and have a party. But you were so busy being a slave, you didn't act like my son. In closing, I want to say this. Remember this. God's joy is over your repentance, not your appearance. God's joy is over your repentance, not your appearance. He would rather have a heart that repents of sin than have a life that is busy trying to look like it has no sin. When the enemy accuses you, and look, this is how it works. You fall into sin. The enemy is going to say, God can't forgive you. He won't forgive you. How could you you squander everything God has given you? Then he's going to tell you, Oh, and by the way, your brother at church, he's not going to celebrate you either. He's going to accuse you of wasting the family inheritance. This is what the enemy is going to be whispering in your ear. There is more repentance over or more joy over a repentant sinner than someone who looks like they don't need it. You need to get that. When you're caught up in sin, repent. And recognize that God rejoices over that. Over your repentance. And what is repentance? It's seeing your sin for slop and hunger and brokenness. And getting off your tail and running back to your Father. And wanting to come into his household and through whatever means necessary in whatever way possible you run to his, ho- his home. And he's the one who instead of taking you back as a slave and putting you under that burden brings you in as a child. And we the church cannot be like the older brother. I mean, listen. God has compassion on both. One of the things I didn't say in this is that all through this passage, he's using the word euios or euion as for son. And then when he, often we translate it as son again, but when he says later on towards the end, and he's addressing the older brother, and he says, and he called, and the many translations will say son, but the word in the Greek changes to teknon, which means child. It's a term of endearment and affection, and he says, to our brothers and sisters around who we would tend to want to judge, I want you to hear God's heart. He's not saying to them that they're lost, that they're, He's saying, "Look, my child, come in and celebrate." The message from Jesus in this. This may be one of the few times you see a gentleness with the Pharisees, and he's saying, "This could have always been yours. Just repent and come in." Let's pray. Father, I'm sitting here and thinking about my own life, and I'm thinking about the lives and the testimonies that are in this room right now. And what an amazing party and celebration, Lord. I pray that, Father, as we sing our last song, Lord, and we get ready to go eat, and we, have, we celebrate our salvation uh, in remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the Lord's Supper, Lord, that our hearts would be hearts of celebration, We would recognize we're in a party that something amazing and great has happened in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters here and that we are called the children of God. Lord, may the rest of our day be a a a festive celebration over that. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.